Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Grateful, uh, as usual, to get to open up God's Word with you. So please, would you open your Bibles and meet me in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we will be looking at the seventh verse. We've been looking, if you remember, for the past number of weeks at this particular chapter and really this passage in Isaiah's uh, prophetic word for God's people. Um, and so today, as we've navigated through the Advent season, now we will be looking at Isaiah 9, verse 7. And I think what we'll notice, not only with our own experience, but with this particular passage, that, that Advent builds to a crescendo. There is a culmination with this arrival of the Son of God who takes on flesh, Jesus Christ. And, and we can get this feeling, this, this experience, that after all the presents have been unwrapped and all of the celebration has taken place, uh, even in a unique situation that we've been in the past couple of years, it can feel like the end of Advent and the coming of Christ is the end of a story. But really, as Isaiah tells it, and I think as the scriptures testify from beginning to end, Advent is not the end of a story. Advent is all about a new beginning. It's, 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 I think, important to keep in mind that Jesus comes to earth not just to hang out, not just to come to earth. Jesus comes to die. Jesus comes to rise from the dead. And more than that, Jesus comes to reign. I think one of the most often neglected ideas of the coming of Christ or the first advent is that Jesus came to set up a kingdom. He came to build, if you will, this new reality. This, this new government, this new system, this, this new reign. And he came, in the words of Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 9, with a particular purpose in mind. Hear this, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this, from this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So through this passage, if you just recall in your mind the past number of weeks, we have considered that the advent of Christ or the uh, son or child to be born that Isaiah is proclaiming about has brought peace. He's brought joy. He's brought freedom. He's brought glory and all embodied in this new king who we know to be Jesus Christ. And now this king, Jesus himself, Isaiah tells us, establishes a kingdom or a government. So he didn't just come to give us gifts, if you will. He didn't just come to change things for us. He came to establish something. And in this particular case, Isaiah uses the language of government. And, and I think that we can identify with that through the scriptures, this idea of kingdom. And so today I'd like to talk about government, because a number of things likely come to mind when we think about government. We need to talk about politics, we need to talk about kingdom. And in order to do that, I'd like to explore a few things. First, the problem with government, and how Jesus, I think, begins to uh, demonstrate how he's going to solve, and how he is solving that problem. Uh, the purpose of government, and how Jesus epitomizes this particular purpose. And then the passion of government. And how this all sort of works out, how this all comes together. So the problem, the purpose, and the passion, like hopefully a good preacher, right? Making sure all the uh, points start with the same letter. Don't always get to do that, so I guess this is one last Christmas gift to us all, if that's your thing. 
Uh, with that being said, keeping in mind uh, that we don't go forward in this to figure out the scriptures for ourselves or what God's will is on our own. We need the Lord's help. And so let's acknowledge his spirit who is present with uh, the praises of his people when the church is gathered, albeit digitally in this particular case. Um, let's go to him. Let's ask for his help as we come to this text. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We can't open these pages and understand your heart and mind. To be sure, we can figure out what the prose of these different um, words mean, what they mean, and perhaps in our language and in our culture, but to understand your heart, your purpose, your power, your nature, and your goodness, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures to us. And so we humble ourselves before you and we, we say we are needy and uh, desperate for a word from you to be encouraged, to be lifted up, to be edified, to be trained, to be discipled in accordance with your will and your way and your word. So help me to be available to uh, your people in this way as I'm submitting to your spirit. God, help me. Help me to be submissive to your spirit's leading in this moment as we all listen to you speak to us, poke and prod and remind and reveal things in our hearts um, and minds today. So be with my sisters, be with my brothers, and we pray, uh, Father, that we would hear a word from you that'd fill us up and you'd help us to know what it means to live in light of what you say to us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let's, let's keep something in mind before we jump uh, to the particular uh, meaning of this verse. Let's keep in mind that Isaiah is writing to a people who are in a governmental, political, and national turmoil. That they, they're in the middle of a lot of challenges. And the king of Israel was trying in the middle of those challenges to consolidate his power by aligning himself with Assyria, a nation that did not know God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, nor did they honor him. So they don't know God, they don't, they don't honor God, they don't obey his word, and yet Ahaz, the king of Israel, is aligning with them, alleging himself to them, to try to maintain power and control of his own kingdom. And even though Isaiah writes in many respects to warn King Ahaz that this is not going to go well, consolidating earthly power never goes well, Ahaz does it anyway. And so the consequence, and really even the remedy, because God in his kindness often wraps up the remedy within the consequence, God, God exacts something upon this king, and in particular what we learn is that he is sending a new king. In the midst of this proclamation, then, Isaiah says this, again, Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and right, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Ahaz's kingdom is coming to an end. That, that's one of the reasons that Isaiah is writing. But God's kingdom will endure. This is really instructive for us, right? That in our lifetime and in the life of our nation, country, or whatever part of the world you come from, Powers come and go, kingdoms come and go, governments come and go, cabinets come and go, right? But what we learn through the scriptures is that God's kingdom endures forever. God's kingdom in particular is going to advance, Isaiah says, through this child who was born king. That's an observable then dichotomy of ancient Israel, which I think rings true today. Earthly governments are fleeting and I think we all know this, at least in principle, no matter how we behave on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, right? We know that earthly governments are fleeting. But I think we also know 
that government has a significant impact and power in our lives. And in this life, government is fleeting, and yet government is also powerful. And we're not always sure, I think, what to do about this tension. Let me explain what I mean. Have you ever heard a Christian, whether in the middle of like political conflict or strife, or perhaps after an election, said that Jesus is still on the throne, right? Or talk about placing their hope in future kingdom after an election or something like this. If it's in good faith, that kind of sentiment, um, I, th I think really, if it's in good faith, it usually goes viral when a chosen candidate loses. So it's a way of clinging on to some sort of hope when the one who you were hoping was going to take office or an idea or policy that you were hoping was going to pass doesn't. It's a way of consoling ourselves, a way of reminding ourselves of ultimate reality. Jesus is still on the throne. A, a new kingdom or a hope of a future kingdom is coming, right? Now, of course, there is truth always in that idea that Jesus is still on the throne and that a better hope is coming. But there is also, I think, a very important misstep in the relationship that we foster between earthly governments and Jesus' kingdoms. King kingdom. After all, when, why don't we say and, and have this kind of brazen hope for ourselves when our party or our candidate wins? Usually, not always, we cling to a future hope uh, when the hope we clung to or cling to in this life doesn't win. In, in other words, in some respects, it feels like a second option. And that's the problem with government. Our hope in a future kingdom is not a second option. It's the only one. It's not a secondary hope if, if the elected officials and the particular party or persuasion that we're a part of in this life doesn't work out. We don't then cling to or resort to the kingdom of Jesus. Are you with me? See, earthly government gives us a false sense of hope and a false sense of despair. What government promises, in other words, it can never perform because it's made up of sinful human beings. Now, that does not make government evil. And here's where some of us, I think, are misguided. Is, is that because Jesus is our ultimate hope, we, we throw the whole thing away entirely. But like many things, government is a gift. It's a gift from God to be received with the right heart and used for the right purposes. So what are those purposes? The Apostle Paul, which we'll get to in a little bit in Romans chapter 13, uh, when we get back into Romans in the new year, he says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In, in other words, let, let's make sure that we hear this. Government has been set up, and governments are set up. Those in power, God has set those things in place for our good. Paul goes on to say in verse 3 of Romans chapter 13, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, the problem, of course, is that those in power are far too often a terror to the innocent, to the weak, and to the marginalized. Even still, then government is meant for our good, even when bad government is put in place, or bad people are in a good government. The problem with government is not government itself. What the scriptures help us to understand is that the problem with government is our treatment of it. It's our relationship with it. To help us understand this problem better, let's talk about the difference between government and politics, because we often use these interchangeably, but they're very different things. So when the Bible talks about government here in Isaiah chapter 9, 
and, and elsewhere. The idea being conveyed um, is dominion and power. Dominion and power. Government, then, is about the power or people who have dominion or control and make decisions for a group of people like a nation or a city. And this is consistent with Webster's dictionary, its definition of government as well. But politics are very different. Politics is the art and science of government. Politics is the way those in power use their power and influence to lead others. So give me grace if you are a political science major or something like that at the risk of oversimplification. Government is about authority. Politics is about style and character. Government is about authority. Politics are about style and character. And let's be real. Let's put this in 2020 terms, shall we? For many people, Donald Trump was not their political candidate of choice. In other words, they did not care for his style and character. For many others, Joe Biden was not their political candidate of choice, nor is he still. They did not care for his style and character. But in a free and open election, when a politician is elected into office, he or she has authority to set up a government as they please, regardless of their style and character. Regardless of our impression of who they are, what they're like, what's underneath their rhetoric, they now have authority. And of course, within a democracy, this has limits. And, and even still, politicking continues within government, but government is established. A rule of law says this to us. A rule of law keeps order in this. And here's, I think, where the problem then becomes personal. But again, we're in the problem of government, problem with government. It gets personal here. When we don't like someone's politics, we struggle to submit to their governance, right? When we don't like someone's politics, we struggle to submit to their governance. We can, we can even decry government as a whole if we don't like a particular political leader who takes a particular office. But when we like their style, conversely, when we like their style and character, we are often far too lenient with their authority and give them a pass in the ways that they exert that authority on others. See, we can, in many different ways, we can even center government as our savior if and when we like a particular political figure in their style and character. Are you with me? That's the problem with government. And politics, even for that matter. Earthly government gives us a false sense of hope and despair. And what we see in Isaiah 9, verse 7, is God's plan beginning to unfold about how he has solved and is solving the problem with government. After all, Israel could have had one of two responses to Ahaz's political maneuvering with, with Assyria. Maybe they liked his style and they supported him, right? And this vying for power and consolidating the, the well-being of Israel eager to see that their nation would come into its own and have this kind of moral authority or even ethnic authority within the region. Maybe they didn't, though. Maybe they didn't like what Ahaz was doing. And they despised his power. They despised who he was. And they perhaps, even in the middle of that despisement, begin to despair over their destruction because they know what God is able to do and through even Isaiah is saying that he will do. And instead, despite those two different responses, instead God intervenes and he tells them what? What's verse 6? Move your eyes back up if you're still in Isaiah 9. Move back up to verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Think about that in that context. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then he goes on to our particular verse that we're considering today. So in the middle of this problem, in the middle of placing too much hope or despairing too much over the King Ahaz, the particular leader of the day, right? God says, here comes another one. Here comes another king. And the, and the government's going to sit on his shoulders. And he's very, very different, isn't he? He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. He's a prince of peace. See, the problem with government is that it gives us a false sense of hope and despair. And God's plan to solve that problem is through a new government, a new brand of politics, a different kind of power, an otherworldly style and character embodied in the unexpected, a child born, a son who has been given to us. So that's the problem with government and how Isaiah sees God's plan beginning to unfold of how he's going to solve that problem. Now, what's the purpose of government? Well, as we've already established, God has given us government for our good. Therefore, we should not disregard government or act as if Christians are meant to stay un unengaged with government and politics, which we can have a tendency to do. After all, when we say things like Jesus is still on the throne, that, that can be a really privileged statement because whatever new party or policy is being uh, taking hold of power or is being uh, distributed, ultimately we can say it doesn't really affect us. And so that can be a statement of privilege. In other words, it's easy to say that God is in control when your life is seemingly unaffected by government. Christians should live above the moral fray, but not the political fray. Here's how John James rather says it in his first chapter as he's writing to the dispersed church in the first century. He says that, J that, that our calling is to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, we're supposed to be holy, not disengaged from politics. That does not mean that we don't get involved. It, it is possible and even necessary for Christians to pursue holiness and advocate for the least, the last, and the lost through fair legislation and moral leadership. This, I think, has been a really helpful journey for me through an organization called the AND Campaign, which many of us participated or with a, a, a protest that we uh, joined with the AND Campaign last year as we began to learn what it meant to demonstrate love for, many of us began to learn, rather, uh, what it meant to demonstrate love for our black neighbors and respond to the atrocity of the death of black people at the hands of the police and even signing uh, a letter to local government saying we want to see some new legislations come to pass for self-protection for protection rather and for dignity and so it's been really helpful to follow the end campaign learn from them and, and three of their uh, board members wrote a book called compassion and conviction which i think helps give us clarity about what it means for us to be Christians, but also those engaged in government and politics. They, they write in it that our primary purpose is to preach the gospel. That said, Christians should participate in political activities because they give us a significant opportunity to actively love our neighbors by promoting their well-being and defending their best interests. The Bible and history show us that God's children can do great work in politics as long as they aren't of politics. See, government and politics are a gift and a tool to be used by God for his kingdom purposes. They are not our hope, but that does not mean we dismiss them or disengage from them as some sort of higher form of faith. These are gifts 
not gods, but we should be engaged with them. So if, if it is a gift, what does it look like for us to steward? What is, it, what is the purpose, steward this gift? What is, it, what is the purpose of government? Look again at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is telling us that Jesus' kingdom and his government will look very different than Ahaz's kingdom, and any earthly kingdom for that matter. Ahaz's power and politicking was comprised of violence and greed and selfishness and fear. But Jesus' reign, Isaiah tells us, is built on what? Peace, justice, righteousness. That's the purpose of government, to establish peace, justice, righteousness. Let's consider each of these briefly and think about what it means to be followers of Jesus who are engaged in a system that's meant to promote these sorts of things. First, Jesus' government produces peace. First and foremost, when we think about peace in the Bible, we should definitely be thinking Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that Jesus has purchased peace between us and God. But like any gift of Jesus and any Thing that he has purchased for us in a cosmic and spiritual realm, we are to desire and even work towards seeing these cosmic realities invade our everyday life. And today, in this day and age, the world is as much at war against in the same things that Isaiah, in, as, as in Isaiah's day, things like money and power and so on. So as Christians, instead of asking of a politician or of a policy, do I like this? Will this help me, the follower of Jesus, ask, does it promote peace? Does it promote peace? Not only so, but Jesus' government produces justice. Biblically, justice is about making things right. So whenever we read that word, we should be wondering, what, what wrong thing is being made right in justice? And, and who's even defining what is wrong and what is right? Because Jesus, from his throne, one day, Isaiah tells, or rather, Revelation tells us, that he is going to say, Behold, I am making all things new. He's talking about all things physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. All things will be made new. In other words, everything that is wrong will be made right through his government and through his kingdom. And so, when we vote on policies or we tweet about a candidate, whatever it might be, we should not be asking, do I like him or her? Will this help me be stronger? Will this help me feel safer? But rather, what does the Bible say is wrong in this world? And will this policy or person help to make it right? In other words, we ask, does it seek justice? Does it seek justice? justice. So Christians ask, does it promote peace? Does it seek justice? Thirdly, Jesus' kingdom promotes righteousness. And righteousness and justice are like two sides, two different sides of the same coin in Scripture. In fact, in Greek, it's the very same root word. And here in the Hebrew language that most, much of the Old Testament is written in, the word here for righteousness in Isaiah 9 can often be translated as justice. But there is a nuance. One Old Testament scholar explains that while justice reveals the procedures of Jesus' reign, righteousness speaks to the principles behind those procedures. So justice is about the procedures, and righteousness is about the principle. In other words, the style and character. Jesus' politics are just and righteous. Jesus' style and character is defined by his moral perfection. He is holy, 
and loving in his dealings with his constituency. So we should not be dismissive of poor character and bad principles. Instead, we should ask, is this righteous? Is this righteous? Is this, is this in line with what God says is good? Does it, does it counteract what God says is wrong? And does it bring peace where there is conflict and strife and despair? What's this look like? Well, again, at the risk of sounding incredibly oversimplistic, let me just ask this. Is your vision of government and your engagement with politics about you or is it about others? Is it about you or is it about others? Is it informed by your impulses or by God's word? See, it's been my experience and my observation that we either think about government and politics as a way to secure my own well-being or as a way of promoting or seeking the well-being or shalom or peace of others. See, when Jesus introduces the nature of the kingdom in Matthew 5, he says that the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit, those who mourn, for the meek, for the hungry and thirsty, for those who make peace, for the persecuted. See, the government of which Jesus is establishing on earth and of which his people ought to be all about benefits the forgotten, the weak, and the vulnerable. And the purpose of government is to produce peace, justice, and righteousness. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, and it's fair. It's way more complicated than that. Because what it means to think about others with peace and justice and righteousness is rarely black and white in legislation, isn't it? Let's just think about abortion. The Supreme Court, in fact, is considering a case right now that many think threatens the viability of Roe v. Wade. So should Christians advocate for the unborn? After all, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And the, the unborn are truly some of the most vulnerable, if not the most vulnerable in all of creation. They cannot speak for themselves, defend themselves, or even take a breath on their own. Yet the life of the unborn is routinely cut short in this country and all over the world. Conversely, though, Many of the women who carry the unborn are vulnerable too. And Jesus explains that entrance into the kingdom is weighed upon our response to people like these. Matthew 5.25 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So shouldn't Christians advocate for these women as well? And what about children who are born into poverty and racism and violence and inequality at no fault of their own? Surely what it means to be about life is to be about God's creation from the moment of conception all the way through the seasons of life. What does it look like for the church then to advocate for peace and justice and righteousness in this kind of complexity, in this kind of contentious political idea an important issue. See, the problem with government is that it gives us a false sense of hope and despair. The purpose of government is to produce peace and justice and righteousness. That's the problem. That's the purpose. Now, what about the passion of government? Or we, we might ask, how is it possible for the government of Jesus to be established on earth when these kinds of complexities persist? Well, the short answer, believe it or not, is I don't know. I'm not really sure what this truly looks like for us 
to do this. But what I do know is that it is much more complicated than we often make it out. And, and the demonization of others, especially church in the square, our brothers and sisters in Christ and their perspective and decisions is not the way either. And so if that is a common habit of yours, you need to repent and ask for forgiveness. Or as country music singer Casey Musgrave says, she puts it this way, taking down your neighbor won't take you any higher. See, having God's plan and communicated his purpose, Isaiah now explains how this kingdom will be established, how this is all going to come about, which is really instructive for us as Christians to know what we ought to be about in order to see his kingdom come and his will be done. In short, it's through the Lord's passion. That's the word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 9, verse 7. Look at the final statement or the final phrase there in the verse. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, there is a powerful paradox here I don't want us to miss. It encapsulates the government and politics of Jesus. First of all, it's that word zeal is related to the Lord's jealousy, which I know at first blush, jealousy seems like a negative term, like it's a vice, but in actuality, it's a deep virtue of God's love. God's love, in other words, is uncompromising and exclusive. So how will this kingdom be established on earth? Through love. But that's not it. Isaiah says it's the zeal of the Lord will do this. But notice, the name he chooses, Isaiah, to describe God or talk about God, it's the Lord of hosts, which in Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth, or God of the armies. It's a vision of God described by the prophet Joel. The Lord, Joel says in chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? See, God's authority commands legions or an army of angels who execute his word without question. It's great. It's very awesome. It has no rival. So, how will this kingdom be established? Through power. So there's the paradox. The kingdom of God is established on earth through love and power. Now remember, government is about authority. Politics is about style and character. And the reason that every other government is fleeting and every other political party is here one minute and gone the next, because no one person or no one party's style and character is sufficient for the power with which we are entrusting them. It is never enough. It is never in harmony. And so this last bit of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 is deeply hopeful because it tells us directly about the nature of a better king, a more sufficient, glorious, amazing and majestic power named Jesus, whose politics and government are in perfect harmony. His passion, if you will. See, Jesus' politics, his style, and his character is all about his uncompromising and exclusive love. Jesus' government, his authority, is all about his uncompromising and exclusive power. So the passion of government is a harmony of love and power. We see this manifested on the cross, where love and power meet in perfect fellowship. See, on the cross, Jesus upholds his power and authority. The wages of sin is death, and a death takes place. Yet on the cross, Jesus demonstrates his love and grace. He dies in our place and for our sins. See, I think in our sin, particularly in the political realm, 
We are drawn to a love without power, which leads, we believe, to autonomy or freedom is what we call it in this country. Or a power without love, which leads to domination and control. And we should repent of pursuing one of those things without the other. I think we sin in this way when we adopt one earthly government structure or political strategy as the hope of a country or a world. We do this when we conflate, to be very specific, evangelical Christianity with republicanism. We do this when we conflate gospel mission with progressivism. Jesus is not going to reign through any earthly power or party. He is and always will rule over those powers. Are you with me yet? See, passion comes. This is fantastic. Passion comes from the Latin word meaning suffering. Interestingly today, I think we are most passionate about avoiding suffering. But I wonder if this is not the way we are meant to embrace politics and government in our country as God's people through the lens of suffering. After all, if Jesus established his kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness through suffering, shouldn't that tell us something about his constituency, about his kingdom, about his people? And I think we will only begin to suffer when earthly government, in particular, in this life in general, is not our greatest hope. We will only begin to suffer for others and for the sake of Jesus' kingdom when we see that the purposes of Jesus are greater than our impulses for self-preservation and comfort, comfort and thinking of others as more important than ourselves. We will only be willing to suffer for others when we catch a vision for a king whose love and power led him to suffer for us first. You see, the problem of government, the problem with government, is that it gives us a false sense of hope and despair. And God begins to solve this problem by sending a better king, one who is worthy of all of our hope, Jesus, to establish an eternal and better kingdom. The purpose of government is to produce peace and justice and righteousness, and it only takes looking at one issue for us to see that the earthly forms of government that we've come up with cannot accomplish this fully. Only in King Jesus do we see the fullness of his purposes embodied. And the passion of government is seen through suffering. In suffering, Jesus shows himself to be our true hope. And through suffering, Jesus brings about his purposes of peace and justice and righteousness. And how does he do this? By being fully love and full power. Can you even imagine? Church in the Square, what if the church was no longer known as just another voting block vying for power and self-preservation? What if we became known as those willing to suffer for the sake of others, even in the ways that we voted for the sake of peace, justice, and righteousness? I think then we would see more and more of Jesus' kingdom come and his will done here on earth as it is in heaven. I think then we begin to capture the heart behind Advent. I think then more and more people would truly see that love has come. So may it be so, church, for his glory and our good and the good of this world. Heavenly Father, help us, forgive us, comfort us, encourage us, embolden us, empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.